Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, at the end of the reading, I will conclude by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and then we invite you to respond together, thanks be to God. You can follow along with the reading and the response on the screens. Today's reading comes from Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through 20. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go, and what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is a gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. If you are in Kingdom Kids, go ahead and this is now the time to dismiss. I don't have the cheat sheet of this, so let's see if I can get this right. Preschool over here, nailed it, look at that. And then we got uh, K through one over here. Meet your teachers in the back, they will be there. If you're in the older Kingdom Kids class, grades two through five, I'd like to welcome you into big church with us. I don't know if anyone calls it that anymore, but uh, when I started going to church in middle school, I heard people refer to church in what happened in here as big church. So welcome to big church. Glad you're here. Uh, you hopefully have clipboards. Mr. Brandon does a great job making sure those are put together. You have places to take notes if you're a note taker um, to grow in that discipline. So that's fantastic. Uh, follow along. It'll be helpful. So with that, if someone asks you later, what was the sermon about? Hopefully you can have some kind of answer for them. Well, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Rob, and I get to be one of the pastors here at the King's Church. And I'm still just as surprised as you are by that fact, but here we are. Um, today, Kyle, thank you for reading. Uh, as you've seen, we're going to be talking about money and wealth. Don't know who's uncomfortable yet, but uh, here's some things I can promise you from the outset. We're not going to be doing a special offering. There's not going to be passing of plates. I'm not going to try to strong arm anyone to fill the front of the stage with money and I'm going to dance upon it. That's, that's not how we do things. We don't do that here. Uh, we always do the same thing with giving. We have giving boxes at the side. Those 
for people who call the King's Church home. We invite you to give and give generously, but this will not be that. Instead, what our aim today will be is to let the Word of God speak, to act as a diagnostic tool to see how we view money and what that says about our hearts. I'm sure that some of us have been through various diagnostic exams before. Um, you go through, you do a test that you're kind of wondering what it's about, stress test for your heart. You're running on a treadmill, still don't understand why people do that, but that happens. Uh, and then the results come back. You may not like the results, but somehow it impacts how you live. It tells you how you were living, that something needs to change, and then move from there. So that's what I hope and pray that the word does for us today. So let me go ahead and give you my main idea, not as a spoiler, not any other. So just we're clear. We all know where we're going, and then we'll unpack it. My main idea for today is that joy and satisfaction are not found in money, but in our contentment in God. If you have a Kingdom Kids page, you have that main idea. I'll say it again. Joy and satisfaction are not found in money, but in our contentment in God. Let's pause. Let's pray. And ask the Lord to be with us. Heavenly Father, God, I'm so grateful that you use broken people. God, please be with us today. God, out of an overflow of our hearts, I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified today. That, um, that you would help us all view the lot that you have given us a stewardship, to find joy and satisfaction only in you and in your son, and to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to love you and to love our neighbor. So God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O oh God, my rock and my redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> so this idea of joy and satisfaction being found only in God, not uh, in our contentment in God, not in money, our text comes to this conclusion by two perspectives. One we're going to start with is the outside look, right? Just from our standpoint, our vantage point, what we can see. This starts in verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. Then verse 9, but this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Now, uh, our author here, probably Solomon, is doing a great job going in a classical education, using the, one of the five common tools, topics, if you are a classes teacher, you guys have heard instruction about this, but the art of comparison. Throughout each one of these paragraphs, there are comparisons taking place. And so now we're contrasting rulers and kings. And so the beginning of this kind of sounds like the prelude to a 2021 social media rant. You know, you just get up, mad at the world, so you decide to tweet, Instagram, Facebook, whatever the verb of that is, um, and post. You're like, hey, here's what's wrong with the world. And in a certain element, it's okay that we notice what's going on, right? There is oppression of others. There are violations of justice and righteousness, and this should not be so, especially for the believers, we should have eyes to see what's going on here. <clears throat> now here, we're not given the, the proper way that a, an economy should run. So we're not getting 
political necessarily, but what we're seeing is regardless of what political system is at place, what economic structure is there, there's always the temptation for wicked people to view money and the resources more important than the laborers. Because if you start being more concerned with profits, start being more concerned with that lavish lifestyle, you're going to increase that labor because you can't get enough. Just a little bit more, just a little bit more. So whether it's socialism, whether it's extreme capitalism, whatever that is, it's all built on the fact of other people and their insatiable need for more. But our text paints broadly, where we can view the oppression of the poor and see something has to happen. Well, we do see that, that there are actual kings that seek the good of the land in every way. A king committed to cultivated fields. Now, when I'm reading, I start to think about where have I heard certain words before? And this word of cultivating was actually a creation mandate given to Adam way back in Genesis before sin entered into the world. In Genesis 2, we read that when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, there was no man to work to cultivate the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed life into his nostrils, the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So God creates everything. He has a system in place, an economic system, if you will, that the land would produce. And then we need someone to take what it produced and then sustain life. And so what does God do? God takes man forms him, breathes life into him, and says, all of this is mine, but I give you to steward. And that's the key difference here between corrupt systems and godly systems is this idea of stewardship. If we realize that God has given us things to steward and people to serve, that will be for his glory and our good and the good of others. And this is what Adam was to do. He was to provide for his wife, who would come on the scene after a short nap, and then their progeny after them, and then even caring for the animals as well. This world of worshipers that they were called to fill was built on the generosity and overflow of God and the stewardship of man. But then sin came in. But that mandate to allow others the benefit of sharing this idea of stewardship, continued on through the Old Testament law. If you read in there, we've been reading through the law in our CBR readings, you will see that there are specifics on how you are to glean your fields, to glean the crops, that the corners of your property, that those are for the poor, that when you're gathering and some fall to the ground, you're supposed to leave those so that the sojourner, the alien among you, the widow, that they would be cared for. So even in our stewardship, the idea of the structure that God has set up is to care for others out of an overflow of thankfulness for what God has given you. Maybe a better way to say it is we are to love God and to love our neighbor, even with our resources. So that's the problem out there, right? It's real easy to stand literally on a stage and see a problem and say, hey, that's it right there. Those people, they have the issue. But our text won't let us do that. We'll continue to read about the problem inside. Look at verse 10 with me. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. 
This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? So this idea of uh, he who loves money not being satisfied or the wealth, that word wealth can also be translated abundance, right? This isn't just like a fat bank account. This is more than what you need. This is more than what you can spend in a lifetime. Now, what's convicting here is that our author does not say that the rich will not be satisfied with money, nor those who log on to their online banking and see multiple commas in their account will not be satisfied. Both rich and poor can fall into the sin of the love of money. Both can succumb to the seduction of being wealthy. Jonathan Aiken writes about this passage, you can love money and have a lot. You can love money and have a little. The issue is not how much you have. The issue is the heart. The issue is the failure to be content with what you have. There was a time in your life when you would have jumped at the opportunity to have the income, family, and house that you presently have. But now it is not enough. I read that this week. And I don't know if you're like me. Uh, when you read something that's convicting, I just have to set it down. And I have to stand up and be like, that hurt. I'd like to unread that if possible. But being confronted with a problem in this diagnostic tool helps to see that how we are living is dooming us. It's actually working for our own destruction. But the graciousness of the Lord is that he is a good father who gives us good things and is drawing us into relationship. So my spiritual reality check here is the fact that as much as I want to believe I'm the exception to the rule, I'm not. And I can think back to in school, living off ramen noodles, right? Young married, still in school, coming together with neighbors and saying, hey, what are you guys having for dinner? Like, I don't know. I have eggs. Well, I have flour. Hey, let's do breakfast together. So this person over here, they make biscuits and gravy. We have eggs and bacon. We come together. We have a meal. Not only do we have a meal, but we have fellowship. Not only do we have fellowship, the conversations are working to spur our affections and one another onto God's provision, allowing God to multiply those resources out of an overflow of just, this is all I have, God's going to do something with it. But then when we start thinking finances, this is where it gets a little bit more tricky. Because if you're like me and you're paying your bills, and hopefully there's more at the end of the month, income that you have. You're like, man, that's cool. There's a little bit more. I wish there was a lot more. How can we do that? How can we get there? Well, Ecclesiastes 5.11 maybe pumps the brakes on that. That when goods increase, they increase those who eat them. And what advantage has their owner to see them with his eyes? Now, there was a song written in the 20th century that highlighted this. It's called Mo Money, Mo Problems. <laughs> I don't know if the notorious B.I.G. was doing his quiet time that day when Ecclesiastes and in this passage, and he decided to pin this work of art. VH1 behind the music didn't tell me that. But what we do know is that this truth is universal and it's not new. The more we have, the more opportunity there is for leeches to come in and to suck the lifeblood out of that newly resurrected bank account. A 2011 Honda Odyssey with 276,000 miles may not be flashy, but it is a swagger wagon. 
And as much as I may want to drive something different, that something different comes with a price tag. It comes with increased insurance premiums. It probably comes with a higher gas price for its tank. The fuel economy isn't great. Fancy houses have to be heated and cooled. We're in Florida. It costs a lot to cool. The IRS is certainly going to get their cut. They'll make sure of that. And then maybe you have some long-lost family members or friends that you haven't seen for a long time, and they're really sad they, that you've lost touch. They wrote in your book to stay cool, and they were coming to check if you stayed cool. And now that they know you have some money, well, hey, I know you have this, and we've come across some hard times. It's amazing how, if you read the cases of lotto winners, how that happens when families start coming and friends start showing up. This is not even lost on the rich. The great Nick Cage, that's right, Nicholas Cage, who brought us such wonders as national treasure, where he stole the Declaration of Independence, uh, face-off, voiced uh, whatever the guy's name is in the Croods, the dad, Con Air, the list goes on. Left behind? I mean, come on. Nick Cage. The height of his career, he was bringing in $125 million. And through lavish spending, let me read you. This is an actual article that I found on the internet, so you know it's true. <laughs> but it's so absurd. Here are the things that Nick Cage bought with his money. A shark, a crocodile, two king cobras. I don't know where you find this. Facebook Marketplace? Don't know. At least one dinosaur skull, a collection of shrunken pygmy heads, a private jet, a pyramid tombstone in a New Orleans cemetery, the most expensive house in Rhode Island on a 26-acre estate, European castles, a private island in the Bahamas, and the pinnacle, a haunted New Orleans mansion, purportedly the site of a string of atrocities in the 1800s. I guess this is what you do when you have $125 million. And then through that, his status, his wealth increased, his status, he starts collecting stuff. And then all of a sudden, well, man, the IRS really wants a lot. Maybe I should hold some of this back. Guess who puts a lien on his properties? The government. And then he has a falling out with his son. His son goes to court with him to sue him. And so this idea where our verse ends next, in verse 12, the sweet is the sleep of labor, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep, is illustrated right here. Can you imagine having to go to sleep worrying about, are your king cobras going to be fed? Is my haunted mansion in New Orleans going to be okay? That there's so many things that won't let him sleep, right? It, this is almost the idea of in, uh, with celebrity culture that they brag about how much little sleep they get because they're always at the grind. They're always doing these things. But yet, if you have little or much as the laborer, whether you're eating little or much, there is this satisfaction that's being had here. You're able to be content knowing that you have that daily bread. Maybe there's something to the Lord's Prayer when we're asking for that. The life of faith is the fact of walking and, Lord, I don't know maybe where that next meal is coming from. But you know what I am going to do? You've given me this job, and I'm going to work it. You've given me this family, and I'm going to serve them. You've given me this lot in life, and I'm going to be faithful, and I'm trusting you to provide. There's the comparison here. So let me ask you this, how's your sleep? 
What are you worried about when your head hits the pillow? Are you looking forward to the next day? Are you trying to manage stocks or whatever? I'm not a money guy. Don't know. Your sharks, your crocodiles. I don't know. And as much as it pains me to say this, don't seek the things like Nick Cage does. Seek the things that are above. Fight for contentment and trust in God's provision. Go to him daily. This next set of verses, starting in 13, going all the way through 17, is almost, it's a parable of sorts. Maybe it's a true story. Maybe it's just our writer and his wisdom uh, telling us a parable like Jesus does. However, what we see here is a grievous evil that's used a couple times. And what this grievous evil is, is that riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And so it's almost, we're getting this idea, because now you get a strained father-son relationship in here, that this guy who is seeking to build his wealth, hopefully, yes, to hand on to his progeny after him, that's a good thing. But again, when it so consumes you and you sacrifice that relationship, because later in life it's going to get better, it rarely gets better. The, the time leeches come, and they suck what you have there out, and you're left with just trying to give your family the leftovers. And no one wants those. And so here he loses his riches in a bad venture. We're not told what this is. We're not even told if the bad venture was because he was taken advantage of in some pyramid scheme. Or maybe he lost it investing in crypto. We don't know. But what we do know is that his identity was so tied to his wealth and income that it leaves him, verse 17 says this, alone, he eats in darkness in much vexation, sickness, and anger. His son's not even with him at this point. If he was doing this all for him, he's lost that. And then we read this interesting phrase here in 15. That as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hands. So again, we're thinking, we're reading through the Bible, we're hearing these certain phrases, because it's all inspired by the same God, and so it's meant to anchor us back to where we read these other phrases. And so if that hasn't hit any light bulbs yet, let me just give it to you. In Job, Job is a guy who had lots of wealth, had lots of kids, lots of animals. He was living the good life. And then, not, and then he loses it all. Not because of a bad venture, business venture, but because Satan comes to test him and removes his stuff. But after all of that, after his kids die, after his animals are taken, after his entire estate is just taken from him, this is what he concludes. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is a stark contrast to the Father in our text today. You see, Job viewed what he had as a gift. And so this gift is to be stewarded, knowing that he didn't do anything to receive that. He didn't do anything to merit what he got. He was a hard worker. Yes, reap the benefits. But he, just like if you plant a garden, you can work and work and work. But unless God provides the growth, it's not there. So he understood that stewardship was the issue here. So that then when it's all taken away, you see what's left in his heart. It's contentment. Even in the midst of uncertainty. Now this is, this is hard. Because what if God 
took away the blessings. Are you going to be like the father and get this father in our text and get angry, vexation, sickness, and anger? Or are you going to be like Job and say, I don't have this all figured out. But what I do know is true, that at the end of the day, the Lord can give and the Lord can take away. Blessed be his name. That starts to show us that how we view God is tied to whether or not we get those gifts. So this is another good heart assessment. Fighting for contentment. Now hopefully, up to this point, I've made the assertion that joy and satisfaction are not found in money, but in our contentment in God. I've hopefully substantiated the first claim about how money cannot produce that joy and satisfaction. And we may be down here right now, but our text doesn't leave us. We've looked at the problem out there, the problem in here, and now the solution. This comes at the end of our passage in verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possession and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Our toil, our work, is to produce joy if we are satisfied with the lot that God has given us. That when in light of eternity, we see our toil just these few days. And we've read a few chapters before this that God has placed eternity in our hearts, almost as if to help us along. To say you can endure this because what's on the other side is going to be so much better. And we get those small glimpses these joys, these successes, this beauty of, of Christ ruling and reigning in our hearts that we can look back and be like, it wasn't that bad. Sure, we had to sell X, Y, and Z to pay the bills, but God was still good through it. So our solution our author gives us here is kind of twofold. We have a universal application, and then we have a narrow application. So you understand like this lot that God has given you. <clears throat> That's to eat, drink, and find enjoyment in your toil or your work. Now, we often view like our lot in life as a negative way. Ah, it's just my lot in life. Right? It's kind of that grumbling spirit. Well, grumbling also is an indicator that what we have is we're not satisfied with what God has given us. So we need to help train ourselves to turn our grumbling into joy. This is the lot that God has given me. I don't understand it. But I'm going to seek the Lord in it. So are you a parent in this room? Cook those meals. Change the diapers. Fold the laundry. Delight in your kids. Though it seems hard now, this is a gift that God has given you. Fight for joy. Rest in God. Because your time with those babies, newborn babies, all the way to taking those babies to college, is really short. I say that as a parent who seems like just weeks ago I had a newborn and now she just turned 13. Fight for those times. When you feel like you have nothing left in the tank to give them, pray. Ask the Lord to help you in that. Are you married in this room and don't have kids? Your spouse is your spouse. Love them. Serve them. Delight that God has brought the two of you together and seek each other's good. The lot 
the spouse that God has given you is not the spouse that God has given somebody else. Don't yearn for that spouse. God has specifically given your husband or your wife for you as a helpmate, as co-heirs with Christ for the work of ministry. Now, this is different. I think it's a good point here to talk about the difference between contentment and complacent, complacency. Because you can say, I'm just the spouse that he gave you. Take it or leave it. Right? But God has never called us to that. God has not just called you to be a lazy spouse. We are never called to remain how we are in Christ, but to become more like him. This too is hard work. It's this toil, but it's what God has called you to. If you're a believer, your lot in life is to grow, being transformed from one degree of glory to the other. Maturation, sanctification. This is a good thing for your marriage. Maybe you're here and you're single. And regardless of your level of income, your biggest commodity is your time. What does good stewardship with your time look like? Faithfully pursuing meaningful conversations, serving others, game nights with friends, studying the scriptures, mentoring, mission trips. You are going to have to fight for this leisure work tension and steward that time well. Maybe you're still in school. We have kids with school getting ready to start. We have college students maybe taking summer classes, maybe getting a little reprieve before they ramp back up for the fall. These will be some of the best years of your life. Low commitments in other ways. You're just focusing on school. And I know video games and sports are cool, but Lord willing, you will have many more years as a follower of Christ than you will as a gamer or an athlete. Seek to invest the commodity that you have of your time for kingdom work. Those are good and important toils as well. God's using those to shape you. He's also giving you 18-ish years, kids, to learn what it means to learn obedience and patience and delighting in your family. Don't waste it. Grow in it. Plant yourself. Water yourself with the word. Trust the Holy Spirit to produce a harvest. So that's the universal. Finding that application there. Now, one of the uh, misinterpretations of this text could be that it's a bad thing or a sin to have wealth, to have money. But our narrow application here, our text continues to go, that shows that that's actually not the case. Verse 19, everyone also, so in addition to those people who weren't given this, to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power, how? To enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. So maybe God has gifted you with the gift of being an entrepreneur, business savvy, a good money manager, or something of the like. Don't feel bad about that. If that's you, praise the Lord for that. There's room in the kingdom for everyone. Those with little or those with much. Matter of fact, reading through the New Testament, specifically in Acts, you're going to see time and time again where people who are wealthy, who have possession, use those for the good of the church. You can read Lydia, talking, uh, she's a worker of purple linen, someone who is a very uh, good market, very specific 
costly material, and she stewards it. And what does she do with what she has? She opens up her house for a church. What an amazing testimony. We have been the recipients of bountiful provision from a God who is rich in love and in mercy. He owns it all. The Bible tells us that the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. He owns a cattle on a thousand hill. I don't even know what that means, but that's a cool flex. And so we go to him boldly, asking for him to help us. Asking and receiving how he chooses to give, that's grace. And then we steward that for his glory. So seek the Lord on how you can use the gifts that he has given you. Don't talk about mine. This is what I have. No, no, no. This is what God has given. This is what God has given me to steward, to entrust, in order to see a greater worship of Jesus. For the believer here today, we can say this all because the, our greatest need that we can work and toil our whole life and never attain satisfaction is being made right with God. Jesus, who is rich in mercy, took on the debt. We just got done singing about it that we couldn't pay. And now his gift is eternal life. His gift is the Holy Spirit. His gift is salvation and now we can approach the throne how we steward that new life is to invite as many people in that process. Hey, come with me. Come seek this. Put that money aside. You're focusing on the wrong thing. Go all in on Jesus. He may not give you all your desires, but he gives you what matters. He's placed eternity in your heart. So invest there. You don't have to hedge your bets there. You don't have to diversify your portfolio with Jesus. Go all in there. Jesus even says, as Matthew records, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find your rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Peter would write in his letter to suffering Christians, if there's someone to complain and to grumble about their lot in life, it's this group of Christians that's facing extreme persecution. But this is what Peter says. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He says that to people who are suffering for the gospel. He cares for you. He's not a wicked father who is doing a bait and switch and, yeah, follow me and, you will experience life to the full. And you're like, but I'm being persecuted. So is Jesus. So were the apostles. So has 2,000 years of church history has shown us. So has the history of our fathers of the faith in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. God's glory is not tied to your present circumstances. He is not obligated to grow your bank account or for you to have an abundance of material wealth because we have treasure in heaven. That's where we invest. And when we see the Lord Jesus and the offer of the grace that he has and the riches, we can all sing along to the chorus of the song that we're going to sing at the very end. I stole the lyrics to this. In all my sorrows, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. In every victory, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. 
More than any comforts, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. More than all riches, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. Our souls declaring that Jesus is better. Make our hearts believe. This is our song eternal. And we give him glory. For we have no other king but Jesus who is Lord of all. When we make him the object of our satisfaction, when we find our contentment in him and him alone, we can agree with the chorus of saints that have been singing songs like this for thousands of years. Jesus is better. And then I love that the tag on there is make our hearts believe because we have to fight for contentment. Brothers and sisters, you may be here today, you may be saying, Rob, you don't know the life I've lived, and I don't. But I know the life I've lived. I know the suffering that I have gone through. I have tasted and seen the highest of heights and the lowest of lows. And I can come to this conclusion that the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, and that Jesus is better. And I need the Holy Spirit. I need you, brothers and sisters, to help me to make my heart believe this. That's why we need this community. So spur one another on to love and to good deeds. So whatever lot you've been given... You can agree with the Apostle Paul who writes about this contentment, the same contentment, and not sports in Philippians. I'll end with this. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray. Gracious, kind, and merciful Father in heaven. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you teach us time and time again that you are a good father. You desire good gifts for your children. God, but we misinterpret that sometimes for material blessings and possessions but God the good gifts that you offer is yourself so God help us sing from the depths of our soul that regardless of our situation that Jesus is better and allow your Holy Spirit and the blessed communion of saints to spur us on to make our hearts believe God you are so good to us thank you for never leaving us in a state of continued blindness by our sin, but your word points out the things that we rather not see. So God, give us eyes to see. Give us hearts to respond and empower us by your Holy Spirit to go all in on your son Jesus. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen.